Today's episode is a repeat of an episode I recorded about a year ago. It is featuring a friend, Hannah Frankman, and I'm re-releasing it because, well, the podcast has grown a lot, and most of the new subscribers probably haven't listened to this episode, and she's also launching a podcast. Hannah's awesome. She's super curious. She's really interested in the future of education and how to integrate things like homeschooling. She talks about her journey of homeschooling and following her curiosity. She didn't go to college, but ended up doing a lot of cool things so far in her career. This is a really great episode and definitely check out her podcast, which is going to explore a variety of themes, including education and homeschooling, but I think it's going to be one of my favorite listens. So check that out in the show notes and hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Uh, yeah, so welcome to the Pathless Path, Hannah. Uh, excited to dive in. Uh, we've gotten to know each other, living in Austin, uh, meeting so many cool people in Austin. I've really uh, loved living here. Um, we're going to talk about a lot today. So you have a fascinating background. You have so many interesting ideas. Right now, you're involved in building an education brand called Rebel Educator. Love everything you're doing. Um, you used to work at an education startup, Praxis, which you described as your dream dream company, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, it's an alternative education system for university education or higher education. Um, you grew up being homeschooled. Um, you're a big advocate of it. Um, you enjoyed the experience. Excited to dive into your story. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like the minute I heard about the project you were like the projects you do and like your brand was called Pathless Path, I knew for certain we were going to be friends. Book shout out. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So so much I want to talk about today. Um, would love to start with just growing up. Your parents uh, decided to homeschool you. Um, you've written about how, like, you didn't you didn't realize, like, when you're doing this, like, when you were a kid, you didn't realize this was like a different thing, right? So, what what was it like um, growing up as Hannah? It was awesome. If I'm being honest, I thank my parents at least once a month over the phone, for or over text or both for homeschooling me. Because in retrospect, I realized what a phenomenal experience it actually was. For me, it was just fun at the time. Like I was doing school at home. My family was actually really weird because my my dad worked from home um, like 20 years ago before working from home was a normal thing to do. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom homeschooling my sister and I. So we were just all home all the time. And it wasn't until I hit like high school when I realized that normal families don't like they see each other for dinner every night. And I thought that was so weird. Um, yeah, growing up homeschooled was, was great. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah. So you sort of had this, okay, this is what, these are things people can do. You've written about this. (laughs) Like just, I love that phrase. Like this is things people can do, but you realize things people can do that were not normal for like broader um, groups of people, but you just grew up around, right? So at 12, you're, you've written that your mom called you an entrepreneur <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. But like, what, what was that like? Like, w- w- tell me a little bit more about that in the background around that. Yeah. So I, 
always had an entrepreneurial streak in retrospect. I just was a really creative kid. I loved making things. And then I realized pretty early on that adults thought it was cute slash impressive at, at like eight or nine. I thought they thought it was impressive in retrospect. I'm like, wow, they must've thought that was adorable. <laughs> um, but adults would think what I was working on was cool and they'd want to support me. So I started like all these little, like I was just the kind of kid that wanted to try everything. I'd see, like I'd read a magazine and I'd be like, this is cool. I want to try making a magazine. And I'd see people starting businesses and I'd be like, that's cool. I want to try starting businesses. So I had all these little projects I was working on all the way through elementary school. I think the first thing I actually paid, I think I sold, I think I made a dollar off of it. I made these tiny little magazines. They were like literally this big. Wow. Um, they were like, I don't know, like no magazines and doll magazines. And I sold one. I sold a subscription to my grandma's friend for a dollar. And I thought that was really cool. But when I was 12, I started making these hand knitted dolls for my sister. And I just thought it was really fun. I liked being crafty. I liked knitting. I thought coming up with knitting patterns was cool. So I made these dolls and my sister loved them and she took them to our homeschool co-op. And some of the moms there thought they were really cool and they wanted them for their daughters. So they asked me if they could commission me. I learned a big word there, commission. Um, commission me to make these dolls. And so I was like, yes, absolutely. And I went all in and I made like a whole hand-drawn catalog and I came up with prices and I made these like outfit setups and I had like a little color swatch of all the different yarn colors that I'd bring in and they could like choose the yarn colors they wanted. And my mom was like, you're an entrepreneur. And that was another big word. I had no idea what that meant. But I was like, that sounds cool. Uh, let's let's go with that. Um, so yeah, it was just like, really, I was just playing as a kid. But then I realized really quickly that it was quite fun to do that and like actually make money doing it. And that was a thing like I could use my yarn and go make like knit dolls and then use the money to go buy more yarn and make more dolls and go buy other things. And I became pretty hooked on the entrepreneurship thing pretty quickly. How did your parents talk to you about doing those things? Were they encouraging you or they just like didn't question what you were doing? How did like you think about doing stuff <laughs> when you were a kid? A, a little bit of both. Um, my parents, in retrospect, my parents did a fantastic job giving my sister and I just like equipping us with an environment that was full of things to go explore. There were books everywhere. There were crafting supplies everywhere. There were um, like art supplies. And like my dad was always out in his shop building things. And we were always welcome to, you know, like come out and see what was going on if we wanted to. So there was ample opportunity to go try stuff. And then when my sister, or I would have a big crazy idea, like I'm going to start a doll business. My parents would just kind of be like, okay. Like here's, I remember my mom suggesting that I like find a pretty notebook and learn how to bookkeep. She's like, you should learn how to keep track of the oh, money wow. that you're making. So I learned bookkeeping when I was 12, <laughs> like very basic bookkeeping, but I learned bookkeeping. Um, so like they'd come along with little nudges like that, but for the most part, they just let my sister and I free to go play yeah. for hours every day. And that's where most of these schemes got concocted. And we'd come running and mom, mom, I have this idea. And we'd tell them about it. And they'd be like, that's cool. And so we're given a lot of freedom. Is there a normal day for homeschooling? <laughs> like, I mean, I know with homeschooling, I've talked to many people who've done it. 
There's a wide range, right? Yeah, it's not very. just like one thing. There's like sort of free range, like let your kids do whatever they want. And then there's more of like, okay, let's like structure this and create some structure. So what was your experience like? Yeah, it kind of varied based on the year. So I was my parents' oldest kid. So I was 100% the guinea pig child. And so there was a lot of trial and error really early on because I, I went to a private preschool and kindergarten, like a very Montessori inspired kindergarten. Um, and then like I was involved in the decision in kindergarten that we were going to try homeschooling in first grade. And at first it was a little more schooly where, you know, like my parents were kind of breaking out of the traditional school mindset, too, of needing to have specific curricula that you're following and specific standards that you're meeting and so early on, it was a little more schooly. We're yeah. like, we'd sit down every morning. And we'd be like, okay, this is what we're learning about today. And then as I got older, it became like, it just kind of organically evolved to match my learning style and also the things my parents were learning. So in I elementary- I want to pause you there. Yeah. Kindergarten, you you said your parents- uh, you were involved in the decision making. <laughs> I feel like yes. we need to cover that. Like, w- talk talk to me through like you're six year five or six years old. Like, what are you like? How are you dry like re- involved in that meeting? That is such a great question. Yeah. Um, so I was I was six. I was born in October, so I was like on the older yeah. end of the grade spectrum, which makes right. a little bit so of a difference. Six year old <laughs> Hannah Frankman's at the table, and they're like, "All right, Hannah, what do you think? Should we homeschool? Like, how, how are you thinking?" about your education like whoa, whoa yeah i mean do you was, remember this I, I do i remember this vividly oh, wow. so my parents were really open with me about the process it was my dad's idea first to homeschool me um and then my mom was fairly quick to get on board too and we were just weighing a lot of options so we went and visited a bunch of different schools my kindergarten year home <laughs> we went and visited the local elementary school like the public school and we visited a couple different private schools and we visited i remember we went to like i remember visiting all these different schools cuz i thought they were all really cool and in retrospect it was actually like laying the foundation for the next 20 years of my life and probably the rest of my life honestly cuz i keep ending up back in education but i remember we visited a school that was um it was like a kind of a a part like a half school kind of thing where like you'd go in a couple days a week and then the rest of the time you'd spend at home we visited this like really nature inspired school we visited a couple waldorf schools and so i remember going on all these tours and then my parents would just like allow me to be present while they were having conversations about all of the different things. And I kind of, you know, had an idea that the Waldorf school was a really long drive. It was like an hour each way and it was expensive. So like, we weren't sure about that one. And I remember like I was involved in the conversation where we went to visit the local elementary school. They were doing their end of year math test and I'd already learned everything that was on the math test in kindergarten so my parents, like I was there for the conversation where my parents were like, yeah, we can't really send you there because you're going to be really bored. Um, and then I remember my parents took this big piece of paper and they taped it up on the wall by the stairs and they wrote pros on one side and cons on the other. And they explained how a pros and cons list worked. And then they left markers there and we could all write wow. stuff on the pros and cons list. And I'm sure mine were very phonetically spelled. But my big contribution was on the cons list was I couldn't ride the school bus. I thought that was going to be a real bummer <laughs> if I didn't go to a real school. 
Um, but like I got to see them adding things to the list. So it was like really an educational experience where I was really involved. Like, I don't think if I'd been like, mom, I decided I want to go to the Waldorf school. I don't think they would have been like, okay, we're going to drive an hour each way twice a day. Like, cool. It wasn't like I was, I could just do whatever I wanted, but I was really allowed to be part of the process. And they definitely had my buy-in when they decided to homeschool. It was very much, it felt like this mutual we're all going to experiment with this and we're going to see how this works. And my sister is six years younger than me. So she was just a baby at the time. And that was part of everybody's incentive too, was like my mom really wanted me to be there with my sister. She wanted us to have a relationship. And in retrospect, I'm so grateful for that. So like I was bought into that part too. I was like, yeah, I want to watch like my little baby sister learn <laughs> how cool. to talk. I want to be home for that. So I was super on board. Did your parents have the sense of, so I, I think you're somebody with like a lot of agency like compared to a lot of people I meet, like your age, I think <laughs> like you, you have a high degree of agency, the sense that like you can do so many things. And like, was that something your parents were thinking about? Like we need to give this person power to make decisions or is it kind of a natural byproduct of homeschooling and the environment you grew up in? I think it's both. I think it kind of becomes a virtual cycle where it keeps begetting itself. I know that for my dad, he was really aware of the fact that I was a really creative kid and he didn't want school to stifle that. Like he wanted me to be free to go do art all day or go like play, make believe and come up with like a whole fantasy world and make up a story and not have school crush that. And I think the agency went along with that where I was a pretty precocious little thing. It was a very precocious little thing. Um, I wish I'd held on to more of that, honestly. Like I was a real go-getter when I was like five. Um, and I think my parents were really aware of wanting to nurture that, which I, that part I wasn't aware of at all. I didn't have that kind of self-awareness when I was five, but I think I had some of that innately. My parents wanted me to be in an environment that allowed that to continue. And then... Yeah. And then the environment and the encouragement just like allowed that to blossom, which I think a lot of kids have it and it just gets stifled right. by all the have to do's of school. So I think it's a little bit of both. When did you get the sense that you might be on a life path that was different than other kids? Um, that is such a good question. Uh, when I was like 18, maybe I don't, really? I don't know. I feel like there were such gaps in my awareness. So when I was, cause I was around other homeschoolers and so homeschooling was a much more normal thing to me than it is to your average person. Cause I was around other people who were doing it. And then when I was, I was on a, like a pretty academic track too in school, like in elementary school, it was kind of, there was a lot of free time and free play. And then starting in middle school and then definitely in high school, I had a really heavy academic focus because I loved school. Yeah, I got so sad my senior year because I was like, oh, I have to go do other things besides school now. This is really terrible. It's tragic. But <laughs> when I was um, in high school, I was structuring my, my education for a long time around just assuming I was going to college because I had this whole picture in my head of just this dream world that I thought college was going to be. And it wasn't until I started doing a ton of research into different schools and talking to people that I realized that college is really just high school 2.0. And I was really disappointed when I found that out because I thought I was going towards this like dream of being an academic or something. Um, but I thought I was on a normal path at that point. It's like, I know I'm doing something separate. Yeah. 
but I think I'm still kind of going to the same place. And it wasn't until after high school that I really realized what a starkly different path I had been on this whole time and what a different direction that was sending me in than the average person. Like, I feel like sometimes still I'm gaining awareness on this where I'm like, I really am pretty different for a 25 year old, aren't I? Like I just hang out with people who are like me. So I kind of forget just how weird I might seem to like the, yeah the average person who isn't around homeschoolers. Well, I think one thing I notice so for me, I worked 10 years in the corporate world and like very, like I, I liked school too and was like following the traditional path. But after leaving the past five years of self-employment, it took me like a few years to unlearn the fact that like I didn't need to find a manager's permission. I didn't need to get access to a company to do the thing and like really like develop the muscle of agency and autonomy was really hard. Yeah. And then I see someone like you and it's like, oh, that person just like, totally intern has already internalized these things has nothing to unlearn um so it's really incredible to see i'm curious when you say like i loved school like what is what does that mean like because i actually did like school like i think people are too harsh on school sometimes yeah um i loved learning new things and when i was challenged and like doing hard things and having the accomplishment of like getting good grades, that was rewarding. But like mostly it was like, I also just loved the social life of school. And I liked being around my friends most days. And I was getting good grades. So like, I didn't have a lot of the negative consequences that some people face. But for you, what does that mean? Like, I love school. Was it like really the topics you were involved in? Was it some of the projects you were involved in? What What does that mean? Yeah, I think like in the purest sense, it just meant that I loved to learn yeah, with awesome. a passion. And I never was in a context that that killed that for me. And I say that with a caveat that like I actually got the other side of the coin because I hated math when I was in elementary school. I just thought it was really boring. And I think that if my parents had taken more of an unschooly approach, like if they just, you know, if we'd run into this problem farther down the road when they knew more. I think if we'd taken an unschooling approach, I eventually would have come to love math because I would have come so, into it in my own terms. But what does unschooling mean? Just for people that don't know, like what unschooling means? Yeah, unschooling is a much more quote unquote radical approach to homeschooling when you're looking at it from like the the traditional school lens. Um, basically, it just means that you're giving your kid a lot of freedom. You're not following like a traditional school curriculum and rules. Like a lot of unschoolers, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do it, but a lot of unschoolers, they'll like let their kids do whatever they want all day. And they'll let the kid's curiosity lead them to learn. Like the curiosity is the compass. And then kids learn to the curiosity. So a kid might innately hate math worksheets and not really care about numbers, which was 100% me. I was like, I just want to read a book all day. I don't want to, I don't want to do math problems. But then you give them a context like running a business and all of a sudden they yeah. want to calculate profits because that's really exciting. And then all of a sudden they can't get enough of arithmetic <laughs> yeah. because it's useful to them. And then when they see it through that lens, they're like, oh, these numbers are telling a story about how much money I'm making. I wonder what other stories I can go decipher through numbers. And then all of a sudden you're totally bought in. 
So it's not taking like the schooly approach of, okay, you need to sit down and work on your math worksheet because it's 1115 and that's, that's math time. So let's go. Um, it's kind of the polar opposite of that where the kids just get to drive the approach. So I think if my parents had taken that approach with math, I would have actually come to love it. Like I actually think I would have been really good at math. I just hated it so badly that I never gave it a chance. And so I got to see like my parents had more of a schooled approach with math where they're like, Hey, you have this workbook that you need to work through this year. So you need to, you know, sit and do your math sheet for the day. And my mom would be like, come on, it's like 20 problems. Like just do the arithmetic. It'll take you 15 minutes. You can go play. And I'd sit there for like two hours and I would draw all over the page until you couldn't even see the math problems anymore. Like anything to get out of it. Yeah, so I got to see that other side of it that I think is how most kids see all of education. Were there specific topics at like 17, 18 that you're just like, nobody could stop you from just doing more and more and learning? Yeah. So in high school, when I say I love school, in high school, I was doing, I was using a couple programs um, called the the Great Courses or the Teaching Company. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. And then another one that's very similar called Modern Scholar. So basically, for anybody who's not familiar, it's basically just college professors lecturing on whatever their topic of specialty is. And then this this production company makes these video recordings of it, and then they're marketed to like continuous adult learners. So basically, you have this library of the best lectures from the best experts on all these topics that you can imagine, and you can go get this world-class education on all of these topics. It's very similar to like a college course. Right. Um, you just don't get the like the live engagement. So well, you're getting a better professor. <laughs> like I was getting TAs in large lecture halls, exactly teaching me statistics. But you're getting the best professor in the world, or like most engaging. Exactly. So that was that was the letdown for college for me. I thought that that's what college was going to be like, and I was so excited. I was like, I want to go to college forever. I want to take all the courses. And then I started to realize that I could pick one of these professors yeah. that I was that I was listening to through the great courses and I could go to their college. And then I was stuck with like whoever else was on faculty. And I wasn't like, I realized it was going to be a downgrade and that's what really started to kill the college dream for me. But anyway, to answer your actual question about subjects, um, I was such a nerd in high school. I took like all your kind of standard requirements and then I added on as much as I could possibly fit in every year. Wow. So I did like, I usually double up on science and I did like oceanography one year and I did anatomy and physiology, and I found this YouTube wow. series where you could watch cadaver dissections. So I watched a whole bunch of cadaver dissections for like pre med in high school. <laughs> yeah, and then it was so cool. And I did like I was really interested in strength and conditioning, so I watched a bunch of like workshops on like understanding your fascia and how to stretch your fascia wow. and stuff like that. And then I did. I really loved history and literature too, so I did. Um, I think it was my sophomore year, I did medieval literature and I read a bunch of old medieval works. Um, and then in my senior year, I thought it would be really cool to do the great books for English. So I did a lecture series, this huge lecture series on the Western canon. And I just tried to read as much of it as I possibly could. And it was so incredibly cool. Wow. <laughs> so you're like doing so like cool. the St. John's curriculum. Exactly. I wanted to go to St. Yeah, I wanted to go to St. John's. But then you had already done everything. Well, not really. I had friends who'd gone to yeah. St. John's and it was actually a really cool experience. Um 
Yeah, so I just couldn't justify the cost. I was like, I don't need this degree for anything. So why on earth would I go spend a bunch of money to go read these books with a bunch of other nerds when I can like, you know, I can do it myself. Yeah. The, uh, it's so fascinating because I mean, I was like an honor student in yeah. high school and like very good at school, but like none of me and my peers were like going home and doing more stuff. It was like, get the grade with as little effort as possible. And like, that was the game. And I look back now and it's such a shame because I had so much free time and now I'm <laughs> such a curious person. Like I wish I had explored more just on my own. Um, but when you're getting good grades, like every adult is like, good job. Like nobody's like pushing you further. Yeah. I, um, I think that's true for a lot of really smart kids is, I mean, and that is it, the system's self-perpetuating, right? Cause it is the game you're preparing yourself for as you go out into the corporate world where it's kind of the same thing. It's like do enough yeah. to impress your boss and then you can go like have fun. Um, so like most people, the, the curiosity gets crushed early on and then it's never given an environment to, blossom again yeah and i mean i i was lucky i mean i think the positive side of like traditional education is there are some heroic teachers that do find you and yes. do support you but the sad thing is they're the exception and not the rule but like i think a series of those definitely like believing me along the way like kept that spirit alive yeah um so n not going to college, like, was there a moment you decided like, okay, I'm definitely not going. Was it sticker price or is it like, when did you decide? And then like, if you're not going to college, what is, how do you conceive of your next step? Given that like society is telling you, you can't just homeschool yourself until you're 80. <laughs> yeah, this was, this was a really formative period for me. Because I think it really, it was hard. It was really hard. I bet. And it really set the stage and the tone for a lot of how I was going to go about a lot of the other choices that I made. It was like a real prelude to a lot of the other really uh, sort of counter norm things that I've done since um, that I probably wouldn't have been brave enough to do if I hadn't done this first. So the first nail in the coffin for college came it was actually my freshman year of high school my mom and I went to this college planning night at our my local high school and we we had like we went to this workshop on paying for college and I remember hearing the numbers and hearing the payment plans and I remember coming home and I think in retrospect I think this says a lot about my headspace when I was in high school I remember saying to my mom this sounds like such a stupid way to start your adult life is to go and spend like the first thing you do is you go and spend a bunch of money that you don't have. Like I was really confused about it. And that was the first moment where I was like, okay, if I can't get a really big scholarship, I'm definitely not going into debt for this. Yeah. Like I know I can learn all this stuff on my own. That's just sort of like my first principles baseline assumption for education. So this seems dumb, but I still really <laughs> wanted to go to college because I loved academics and I thought like I really craved a peer group of people who were as curious as I was. Most of the homeschoolers I knew weren't interested in the same things as me. So like in my mind, I just had to make it to college and then I'd have professors who could guide me and I could have these late night philosophical conversations and I have friends that were interested in these things. I was like, I just have to make it there and then like we'll all figure it out. And actually 
this is actually an important piece of the story. Let me backtrack for a second, because when I was in elementary school, I had a really great homeschool peer group. And then in middle school, it completely fell apart. Mm-hmm. Like there was some mom drama in our homeschool group and it schismed into like three different parts. There was group A and then there was group B and groups A and B hated each other. And then there was a group C in the middle, which oh, like wasn't sucks. invited into either group. And my family was invited into like all three. And we just <laughs> kind of like my mom was like, we're not hanging out with group A or group B. Like this is just no. Um but group C had like six kids in it or something. So it was like not a very big homeschool community anymore. Yeah. And middle school is a really terrible time for that to happen. Like you're ready to start branching out and having more peers and friends. So I was like, I just got to make it to high school and then I'll be able to meet cool people. And I almost went to public high school because yeah. I was so lonely and I wanted friends. That's but a then big I just, inflection point for homeschool people, right? That's yeah. a lot of times people do go to public or private schools because of the socialization yeah, needs when you're like 13. Yeah. It's, it's a really big thing. So for me, I just bumped it out. I was like, okay, I got to make it to college and then I'll find my people. Um, but then I started to realize, I think it was like sophomore, junior year. I started to realize that, college wasn't going to be this dream that I was imagining where I was going to go to this campus and it was going to be just like the teaching company, but in real life and full of all the other people who also get super nerdy, excited about the teaching company. I realized it wasn't going to be like that. And I was kind of going through the process of choosing schools. And that was really hard too, because it just became more and more clear to me that I could do all the academic stuff myself and the benefits of in actual college education, like I started learning about gen ed requirements and I started learning about party culture at school, which wasn't really what I was going for. And I was like, I don't know about this, but everybody told me that I had to go to school or I was going to completely ruin my life. It's like one of the most strongest memes in America. Everybody told me like I was, I was working on this vegetable farm and orchard my senior year of high school And all the people I was working with were all college graduates. And they're like, you're going to ruin your life if you don't go to college. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm working the exact same job as you. (laughs) Like, this doesn't make sense. But they all told me I had to go. And so the thing that really gave me the courage to not go to college actually was Praxis, which I it it was founded the year I was a senior in high school and they had just launched their blog and a couple different people independently sent it to me and said, Hey, I think you'd really like this. And I was like, ew, business apprenticeships. Like, I don't want to go work in business. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. I'm now obsessed with business, but I didn't know that was going to be my trajectory at the time. But the people who were writing for the blog were talking about dropping out of college and how to be successful without college. And I was like, Oh, like this was all oh, wow. I needed was somebody else saying the same thing. And yeah. through all of this, my parents were super supportive that's so my cool. parents were so supportive. They were just like, do what you want to do. Like, you know, they were there to have the conversations with me. They were there to explore it with me. They never told me I should or shouldn't do one thing or the other. Like I'd come to my mom and I'd be talking about the financial side of things and she'd just like walk through it with me. And I really felt like they had the same skepticism of the system that I did. And if I hadn't had that, I'm not sure I would have been able to have the courage to opt out, but because my parents were with me and then I found this blog from this company called Praxis that was talking about being successful without school. I felt like I felt like I had enough where I thought I was going to be okay. 
And if I wasn't worst case scenario, I could swallow the shame of being like a couple years older than everybody else in my college class, which in my head sounded awful. But I was like, I can totally handle that. So I decided to do a four year experiment. Hey there, it's Paul. I just wanted to take a second and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support more, I'd love if you'd share this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole with one other friend. Sharing it like that is the easiest way you can help me grow the podcast, get better guests, and help me continue on this long game. Next, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably enjoy my book. You can check out my book, The Pathless Path, which has now sold over 40,000 copies. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com. And finally, if you're looking to find the others on unconventional paths, I've started a community, The Pathless Path Community, where you can find others on unconventional paths. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com membership. All those links you can find below and back to the episode. Where... So did you design it at, like that at the beginning? You're like a four-year experiment? No, not really. It was just like, let me see how far I can get in four years. Okay. Like, I think I can, I think I can, like, it wasn't even the specific, like, I think I can launch a career or I think I can get the equivalent of a college education. It was more just like, I think I can find my way in four years. And if at the end of four years, I'm not doing something that I'm impressed by, I can always go back to school. And I really made the decision. It wasn't until the college application deadline came and passed and I hadn't applied for anything <laughs> where I was like, all right, I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was that first year like? What, what did you, how did you spend your time? Um, probably some like missteps and stuff, but what, what was that? This is, like? this is the real like shadow, valley of shadows of the hero's journey. I was very lost my first yeah. year. I went back and worked at the farm where I'd been working. I did another season there. And that first winter out of high school, so like I did that right after I graduated. And then that winter, I started teaching writing classes to my old homeschool group, which is where that transition back into education, like that pattern started where I just keep accidentally ending up in education. Like I didn't really set out to work in education. It just sort of happened. But I I started doing that. And then... By the end of that first year, I was really pretty lost. I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. I don't know. I don't know what I want. I don't know where to go from here. I know I'm really hungry for more, but I have no idea what that is. And that's normal. Yeah. Like, I think I realized looking back, nobody, even like at this age, like nobody really knows like what they want. Mm -hmm. I think almost better is like figuring out what you don't want. Um, so by making a choice to not go to college, you sort of like made a strong decision towards some space. Yeah. Like you sort of decided not that therefore I am like taking a stand in terms of certain way of like orienting my life or taking ownership. Um, so what, where, when did you kind of find your way? So... I mean, it's, it's definitely a process. I'm still finding my way. Yeah, we all are. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it started to become clear. So it was, it was like April of my first year out of high school. So I was on month like 10 of being a real adult. Um, And I really 
built that up in my head. I was like, I'm a real adult now. Real adult. <laughs> I don't. I don't know, I know. if I'm a real adult now. Are you I was such a real a, adult? I'm not sure. I was such a baby then too. But in my head, I was like, okay, we're adults now. We gotta like figure this out. Um, but Co- college is not like that. By no. the way, it is like the late adolescence. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, I know that I didn't know that then. Um, but yeah, I decided. So I was on month ten. And I decided that like I needed to start doing some exploration. So I went, I was still following Praxis and I went and did like a deep dive into their blog again. And I saw that Isaac Morehouse, the founder, was um, offering like a public speaking, a public speaking course. And I thought, oh, that would be a cool way to like dip my toes in the water and kind of get a feel for what this Praxis thing is. Like I still don't think I want to go do some business apprenticeship, but this sounds like it might be fun to try so i reached out to isaac and he and i had an email exchange back and forth and i kind of explained my background and he got really excited and he he thought one he was homeschooled but two he was like oh she'd be a good candidate for praxis so he handed me off to other people on the team and they started this multi-month sales process where they tried so hard to convince me to do the program and i like did multiple calls with everybody and I was getting a feel for the program. And I was like, these people are amazing. These are my people. I have to be a part of this, but I also don't want to go through the program and pay them a bunch of money to go do an apprenticeship at a startup because I don't think I want to work for a startup. Yeah. So I was really lost for a few months and I just kept following them. And I just had this really deep gut sense where I was like, this is the thing, but also doing the program is not the thing. So we need to figure this out. And then their COO posted that he was hiring an intern and I saw it like 20 minutes after he posted it and I sent him a message immediately and I was just like, I'm your girl. Like, what do you need? And he's like, cool. Like, here's. Slow slow down. So (laughs) the email was literally like, I'm your girl. Like, maybe you didn't say girl. It It was a Facebook message. I could probably go pull it up right now if you wanted me to. I don't remember exactly what I said. But like it was like direct, like you're it like was, definitely. It was yeah, super I, direct. I it was like I this. I want to be your intern. How do I apply? Was basically awesome. the message. Yeah. And he got and back to me. How old were you at this point? I was nineteen. Okay. Yeah. Still a little baby. <laughs> yeah. So that's amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> It seems like you sort of had this idea, like, I don't want to pay for school. Yeah, very <laughs> um, much so. And that was sort of forcing you, like, this constraint that's like, all right, I need to make it work. I like these practice people. How do I, like, get involved without uh, paying them? So, like, yeah. you're like, all right, maybe they can pay me. Yeah, this was definitely <laughs> another inflection point in the story where a pattern was set, where I was, when I'd find something that I thought was really interesting... I was going to figure out how to get somebody to pay me to go learn about it instead of paying them to do the program, which is something that's kind of been a recurring theme ever since for me. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to be involved though. It wasn't that, yeah. it wasn't that calculated at the time. I was so you just like, you would have probably worked for free. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. And they, um, they didn't pay me very much either. It was a tiny little stipend. Like the, really what I was getting was the experience. So they, he ended up hiring you? He did. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I screamed with excitement when I got the email. Um, yeah, he hired me for a four month internship with him helping on their application review team. And they embarked on a four month process of trying to sell me on doing the program. Like they were treating this like a recruitment funnel and I embarked on a four month process of convincing them to give me a job. And it was sort of this like head to head battle the whole time where he'd bring up like, hey, 
you know, I really think Praxis would be a great fit for you. And I'd be like, hey, I love working for you. I want to keep working for you. I don't ever want to leave. Give me more work, please. Yeah. And eventually I won because they extended <laughs> my internship and they kept giving me more work. And I ended up in retrospect, they called me a contractor, but I thought I was just the intern for 15 months. Like I just would not leave. And then eventually, like I even went through a couple rounds of interviewing for positions that they ended up hiring somebody else for. And then on month 15, so they hired me as an intern over Labor Day of 2016. And they hired me full time at Thanksgiving of 2017. After 15 months, they finally gave me that job that I'd been asking for for a while. So I won at the end of the story. That's amazing. It's, it seems like you've learned a ton from that experience. Like you've been involved in coaching through them, like learning how to write, like learning how to run in a virtual business, um, doing many different things. Um, looking back, like, would you have done anything different or, I mean, I really love where I've ended up, so (laughs) I'm not mad about any of it. Yeah, I think I would have been a lot less stressed about the whole process. Like, I spent those whole 15 months terrified that they were going to email me one day and be like, hey, you've been an intern for long enough. We think it's time for you to go do something else. And in retrospect, like now that I have the perspective that I do, and I've been on the other side of the table where I've been hiring people. I realized that like, if you're doing a good job, people yeah, want you to stay. They don't want to get rid of that no, as soon as you're doing it. <laughs> they don't want to get rid of that. So in retrospect, I would feel a lot more relaxed about the whole thing. I wouldn't, I would just not waste so much time being anxious about it. But yeah, you don't know until you make it through how things are going to unfold. So... Like if I could go back and talk to 19-year-old Hannah, that's what I would tell her. I'm not sure she would even believe me, but that's what I would tell her. But like it all worked out in the end. So you ended up working for them for several years. One thing I found really interesting is like this reading your story, this is where the autonomy jumps off the page again. In 2019, (laughs) you negotiate to work remotely. Yeah. (laughs) So like I love that. Like this is like... I was, I decided I would only work remotely in 2018. So like now the world has joined us as like, this is a normal thing to do, but it wasn't, um, then like, so, so talk to me about like how, where you were in your work at that point and how you decided you were just going to be a nomad and still work for this company. (laughs) I mean, at the end of the day, I just kind of told them I was doing it, but, but it wasn't actually like, it's not as cool as that sounds. It was like a process. Um, so 2019 was a really weird year for Praxis because we actually schismed into two different companies. We like had started building a second product and then our teams just split and made them two different things. So there was a lot of change happening in Praxis where a bunch of our original team had gone to work on this second project and there was a bunch of turnover on our team. And I just took advantage of that to really expand my role prior to that. Like my first year full-time at Praxis, I was just a coach doing, and like kind of like a community manager type person. And then that second year of Praxis, I just started taking on, I kept seeing projects that needed to get done that nobody had the bandwidth for. So I just kept taking them on. So I ended up doing a bunch of curriculum development for us and taking on like a more expansive coaching role and like more of a leadership role on our coaching team. 
And that's like really what set the stage for me to be the program manager eventually, which is what I was doing for like a year before I left. And in that process, I just became more and more valuable. And I also just became bolder about realizing that you could go ask for what you want and take it. And so I had been, so we were living in Charles, I was living in Charleston. Our office was in Charleston. We were actually a remote team when they hired me. And then like a month after I got hired full time, they announced that they wanted everybody to move to Charleston, which I was really salty about because I wanted to be a nomad. Um, although Charleston, if you have to live somewhere, Charleston's yeah, a really, weather. it's a really <laughs> great place. I was like 10 minutes from the beach. It was amazing. Um, but anyway, I, when I moved there, I signed a year long lease and then with, with another coworker and then she ended up leaving the company. So I was left with this lease by myself and my landlord was great about it. He's like, you know, I'm selling the property. You can just break the lease. I was like, awesome. Thank you. And then I just started like sublet hopping because I didn't, I just had this feeling like I don't really want to commit to a whole year here. I don't really want to be stuck here. And so I was kind of poised to be ready to make a quick exit anyway. And then after the company had split into two and two separate entities and one of our teams moved to San Francisco for a while, it just didn't make sense for us to have an office space in Charleston because not everybody was there. So they were starting to make moves to move the team remotely and, and let out the office. And at that point, I was just like, well, my sublet's almost up, so I'm leaving now. <laughs> And at that point, like it was a series of conversations and I definitely like I was, you know, I made sure that everybody was bought in before I announced that I was doing it. But it was also like I, I had been making it clear for months that I wanted to get out and their timeline kind of kept changing. I was like, if I'm here for another year, I don't want to be stuck in Charleston anymore. And then when they started talking about maybe getting rid of the office, I was like, well, I'm not staying until the office is closed. I'm just, I'm going to be, I don't have a home here anymore. I'm going. And at that point, things were in flux enough that they were, they were okay with it. So you start working remotely. Um, you eventually end up leaving um, Praxis. You yeah. You still speak very highly of it. And it seems like you loved your experience there. Yeah. Um, why Why did you decide to leave? I know you ended up taking a sabbatical, like something I've <laughs> written and talked to a lot of people about, um, and I definitely want to explore that. But why did you decide to end up leaving and talk, talk me through that decision? Yeah, so I left um, right at the beginning of 2021. So it was like maybe 15, 16 months after I went remote. And I'd kind of known that this was coming for almost a year before I actually left. And there were a few things. Um, really, they all come down to the root of I was just running out of room to grow. And my ambitions and interests just weren't mapping with where Praxis could support me anymore. And it was a really hard decision because um, I loved Praxis. And it was it was my first love. It was my first real startup job. And that's a really hard thing to walk away from. I feel like if I was in the same position now, I would leave a lot sooner than I had because I just, you know, it's like you see all the red flags, but you're really in love. So you're like really going to try to make it work. Um, so that's kind of the position I was in. And I just hit a point where I just... I knew I wasn't going to grow anymore. We were starting, like I made pretty clear all through 2020 
what my ambitions were and where I wanted to grow into in the company. And for a while I could see a path, but then as the company's kind of goals evolved, it made, it was just obvious that the things I wanted to do, there was no need for that type of position. And so like 2018 to 2019 was a huge jump in responsibility. I went from just being the like boot camp coach to managing pretty large swaths of the program experience. And then from 2019 to 2020, I took over pretty much the whole education department. So I was like managing our coaching team. I was like the version of the curriculum they're still running. I built, um, I was doing a bunch of curriculum development. I was like managing all these different moving pieces of the program. And that felt like a really big jump. And there just wasn't, there wasn't another jump like that to be had. And I'd realized that I really liked these exponential leaps So I wasn't going to be happy if I couldn't have that. So it was like, I definitely cried (laughs) when I made the call. Um, But I knew that it was time. And in retrospect, like I had no idea how important it was for me to shed that skin. Like I kind of felt it, but I really had no clue. Um, but it was so important for me to shed that skin so I could go do other bigger things so I could keep evolving and growing. Yeah. Did you realize that? Did you plan to take a sabbatical like time off or did just sort of, I didn't find anything else to do? Yeah, it was, it, it took a little bit of time. I thought before I quit that I needed to find Like I wasn't going to leave until I had the next thing lined up. And then like we were just doing our 2021 planning and it became really clear to me that if I postponed for like three or four months, they were just going to have to restructure everything again. And that wasn't fair. So I just decided to to call it. Um, And I had no idea what I wanted to do next. So I was like, I'll give it like a couple weeks, maybe a month or two to figure it out. And then I realized really quickly that I had been so excited about Praxis And it had been so clear to me that it was the thing for me to be doing. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to go jump into something unless I felt that way again. So I was willing to wait for the right thing. And I had the, the, the freedom to be able to do that. So I decided I was going to take a break, unwind, because I was pretty burnt out too. Um, And that I was not going to work again until I found something that was so incredibly clear that it was the right thing or I ran out of money and I had to go get a job. Yeah. So how long did you intend to take at the beginning? I thought it was just going to be like a couple months at first, but I had no idea. How long did it end up being? It was eight months. Eight months. Okay. Um, Yeah. So a, a big thing that I noticed people experience is like there's sort of like this one to three month period when you sort of just are like... and you're like just like unleashing a lot of the like built up tension and just like i mean even if you like your job there's a certain amount of like just staying in worker mode and busy mode all the time and then like people sort of like soften into like their sabbaticals and like this is when people's like they're, everything just starts like exploding. Like it's like these possibilities start seeping in. It's like, oh my gosh, I used to like this when I was growing up. Like, did you experience this? Yeah, actually less than I thought I was going to. Interesting. I thought I was going to, 
Like I was like, by month three, I will have like written a novel and I'll be like reading <laughs> well, 10 books a well, day. Well, and that's like- <laughs> common too. People, people have these ideas that like they're going to accomplish a lot of stuff yeah. during their sabbaticals. And from what I've seen, they actually end up accomplishing way less than they expect. Which is important. Yeah. Why do you think that's important? Because well, for me, it was, and I can only speak to my experience. I'm actually really curious how your experience maps over this. But for me... Like the most important thing from the sabbatical was just unlearning all of the stuff that I'd learned when I was working. And some of that was this hyper bias towards creative or uh, productivity. Yeah. So for me, like that's part of why I didn't set a time limit on my sabbatical was because I didn't want any constraints. I didn't want a goal. I didn't want to be constantly like watching the clock and checking how my progress was mapping over what I thought I was supposed to be doing because I'd spent years doing that and I didn't think it was actually healthy for me. Like I wasn't happy when I was doing that. So like I, I very specifically set the intention that I was not going to have an end date because I thought that would ruin the whole thing. Um, So for me, I thought that was that unwinding process was really important, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this too. I think for me, I experienced this sort of deeper connection to myself and this waking up to just a sense of awareness of who I am, how I'm showing up in the world and like all these scripts I had in my head. Like when you've been doing stuff nonstop, like you sort of convince yourself that like, that's what you have to be. And then I think I took like multiple breaks in my first two years of self-employment, um, some structured, some less structured and accidental. But like when I moved to Taiwan, I had less stuff to do and I just had, I was like walking around and I noticed, oh, I feel like I should be doing something, but that's just, a, <laughs> it's like the manager in my head, I call it. <laughs> um, and I was like, like, there's nothing inherently wrong with me just sitting in a park and like contemplating and like learning to be okay with that and realizing like that might be one of the most important things in life. Um, in a way that like, we just have a lot of shame and like built up ideas of like what we're supposed to be doing that are tied to that. Um, so that was probably the most powerful reflection for me. And this is why I kind of build these chunks into my life now as a way to, constantly remind myself okay it's not about the doing it's about the non-doing yeah i think the the way you talked about reconnecting your with yourself definitely really resonates with my experience too and that was one of the things that surprised me was i thought like my whole intention for the first couple months was to just wake up in the morning and do whatever on earth i felt like and That's see radical. where i naturally gravitated towards it it kind of was like there were some mornings where i'd be like I just want to go binge watch Netflix and I'd feel this real resistance. I'd be like, no, we're going to go binge watch Netflix because that's what you want to do. But a lot of it, like I was just, you know, whatever I'm curious about, I'm just going to go do. And I found myself watching tons of podcasts and reading a bunch of articles online. I thought I was going to read a lot of books and I ended up going down rabbit holes of different thinkers on Twitter and like Substack and stuff instead, which really surprised me. But it was also really important because when I left Praxis, I thought I was going to go land another startup job. Like I went and joined Y Combinator's jobs board and I started watching early stage startups. I thought some early stage high growth startup was going to be the place for me, either that or like something in the VC world. Um, 
like I had what I had done for careers with Praxis. Like I'm going to go work for the company that teaches people how to build careers and I'm going to go learn from everybody. I decided I was going to do the same thing for startups. And then after a couple months, I realized that I had done absolutely nothing towards that end. And I really like I kept reading about things and getting bored. Like I just didn't care about some generic tech company. Like I know yeah. other people are super excited about it, but it wasn't my thing. Um, and really it was all of this, like this intellectual world that I kept dropping back into. And it makes so much sense now, a year later, where like that's what I'm doing for work and that's what I want to be. And I just had to give myself the space to let that part of me naturally bloom to realize that that was like my compass was pointing in that direction so intensely. It was like almost painful. It was like, we have to, we have to go do that. We have to go chase this. So it took me the full eight months to become aware of that and to like, really feel into the nuance of like which pieces of that felt right and which pieces of it didn't. And then to admit to myself that that's what I wanted and then just like have enough of the pieces fall into place where when things started to cross my radar, like work started to cross my radar projects and stuff, it was really clear to me what was a yes. Like I I needed all that space to do that. Yeah. And I think this is one of the most powerful things of like taking time away from work, like that ability to pay attention when you start to shift back into this more ambitious mode, you're able to like clearly see opportunities or like the people you're supposed to meet or the ideas you're being pulled towards so much more clearly and powerfully. So like, it just like, it saves you so much time because like when you see something, you're like, Oh that I'm going to like go all in. And like, like you were in messaging the Praxis guy to be his intern. It's like, oh, I know exactly what, and you can go all in on stuff. So how have you been thinking about that in the last year? And like, how have you started to activate some of this next step in the journey? Yeah, this, that's such a great question. I haven't talked about this a lot online yet. So I actually don't know how this is going to land. I don't know if this is going to sound super weird or if this is going to be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense to people. This is the Pathless Path podcast. (laughs) It's very like... That's true. Poetic and we like weird. (laughs) That's true. People didn't come here expecting this and that's their own problem. Um, So one of the things that I really noticed in my last couple years at Praxis was that I had become really dissociated from my intuition. Like I'd been really in tune with it when I started at Praxis. Like I just like the, the level of intensity and certainty with which I knew this is the thing. It's like when people tell you they meet their significant other and they're just like, this is the one, like the conviction that they say that I had that same amount of conviction about Praxis. I just knew for sure that this was it. And I'd really let my intuition drive me for a lot of that process. And then I'd slowly detach myself from it where I was just so in my head focused on the next step that that like gut feeling that I'd been really in tune with for a long time just sort of started to dull out. Yeah. And there's a script, right? It's like, go work at a growth stage startup. Like that is a path that can easily be implanted in your mind is like, I should do that. Exactly. But it was all shoulds. Like there, there are things about early stage startups that are innately interesting to me. Like I want to be friends with people who work at them and hear all about it at dinner, (laughs) but I don't want to wake up in the morning and go do that for 10 hours. So 
the intuition started to like really come back the last few months before I left Praxis. And it was really strong. It felt like somebody was like knocking on the door that I'd shut being like, hello, I'm going to make you listen to me. It was like eerie, the level to which I could kind of feel all of the things falling into place that led up to it being clear that like, okay, this is time for me to leave. Um, like I just knew with such certainty. So I really tried to tap back into that when like when I started working again and that's what like I really made it a point and there have been a couple times over the journey over the past year where I've lost it where I've kind of gotten stuck in either the head or I've been like well I want to do this thing and I know you're telling me that it's not going to work out so I'm just gonna like not listen to you for a couple months and we're gonna go try this and then we'll come like we'll reconvene and we'll talk about how it went and we'll kind of debrief and go from there um but like that's made such a difference for me this past year is like it really truly is a gut feeling like when yeah. I really drop in it's like I I feel the yes and I feel the no and it's made it really easy to follow this path honestly because it's just so abundantly clear to me what's a yes and what's a no to the point that sometimes I'll just be like, this is a no. And on paper, it looks like it absolutely should be a yes. And if somebody asked me to explain it, I might not even be able to, but like, I know it's a no. So we're just going to trust that. And that's, I feel like the more I tap into that intuition, the easier it becomes to accelerate on the path like things just happen faster when you're listening to those initial yeses and nos and that's made such a difference there is a certain magic that can just never be explained Mm -hmm. um, that i've experienced when i'm doing things that are in alignment there's so many like woo woo ways to describe this but it's like very real and powerful and like so this podcast Mm -hmm. like i just i've been doing it on and off for like three years and I just published a book and like I actually started making more money doing like consulting stuff for corporates. That's what I was doing this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going really well and I actually like that stuff, but like something about like the ideas in my book, the people I'm talking to this podcast, it's like, it's like I have to like, I have to do this. And yeah. it's like, there's, it's so clear that it's like, I have to do this. I don't know why it may not turn into anything. It may not be involved in making me money, but like that stuff doesn't matter. There's like a deep essence of like, this is right. Yeah. Um, and learning to trust that is so vital. I think on like my path because I'm self-employed and like you realize the longer you're in these modes, like you basically just need the energy to keep going to stay in the game. Um, Making money is like a short-term game, but then once you figure out how to like make enough, you really just need the energy to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way I describe it, like I think there are ways to describe it that this magic that's tangible enough that you can get people's buy-in. Like if I'm talking to somebody really analytical, I'll just explain like, okay, so (laughs) there's a lot of data that your mind is processing, like intaking all of the time. And just because you haven't distilled it enough to to articulate it verbally doesn't mean that like you're not, you can't bypass that part and kind of like jump mm, to the, the conclusions good. about what the, the data your, your mind's intaking. I have more of like a metaphysical understanding of it where like, I don't think it's quite that, like I don't think about it that analytically, 
but I feel like I can explain it enough to people who are analytical where I'm like, this is why I made this decision. You don't have to like it, but like, here's the logic. But I don't even, I'm at a point where I don't even need the the rationale behind right. why I just trust so much that the intuition is right, that I just follow it. And the more, I feel like the more you get in line with that, like the more your creativity flows to the more everything flows. Like really it's all just a game of getting super aligned with your intuition and your creativity and your desires and the, the compass and the path that feels right to you. And then once you have all those pieces in place, like you have your whole navigation system calibrated, then it's just like, let's hit the accelerator and see how fast we can go. Yeah. So it, it seems like for you, homeschooling was a great way of like, giving you the practice of high agency decision-making and like trusting your intuition. And then even after starting to work, you started to lose that a little. So even you had to like kind of remember, yeah. okay, I need to reconnect with this mode, like remember. And a lot of life I feel like is just remembering what we used to be and like trying to continue to reconnect with that youthful spirit. That's such a funny phrasing because one of my favorite quotes about writing, um, and I had this hanging over my desk when I was in high school, so I used to write a lot. I wrote all through high school, and I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, it's a Joan Didion quote, and she says, to remember what it was to be me, that's the point. And that's like that's her beautiful. summarizing the purpose of writing is to remember like who you were at each stage. And I think in a lot of ways that's all – like it's it, it, it's echoed throughout all pieces of life, not just writing where like there are so many of these things that you were at one point in time that were true and that were important and that kind of sort of uh, like set the foundation was a prelude to where you are now. And it really is important to like, that's why conversations like this are so cool because like you can kind of see the continuity threads that you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily aware of in day to day life but that are really important to be able to trace back and be like, Oh yeah, that is, that is why this happened. That is how I got here. Um, so I like the way that you phrased that very much. Rebel educator. Uh, <laughs> this is the name of your, um, brand you're starting. You're doing a lot of experiments. Um, aren't quite sure where it's headed, but I think you have the intuition and energy aligned behind it. So I'm excited for what emerges from it. Um, what are you thinking about? What are you getting involved in uh, over the next year with that? Yeah. So Rebel Educator has been a really cool project. And I think it's pretty apparent within the first five minutes of talking to me. But I care a lot about education. And I feel really strongly like when my parents were starting to homeschool me, it was all of the there were so many people who were talking about their homeschool experiences that helped my parents have the, the validation that this path was going to work. And I feel really strongly that I want to add to that canon of people talking about successful educational alternatives as a viable path to it's like, Hey, I turned out relatively okay. Like I'm not the, a fair judge of that, but like I am 100% certain that nobody could deny that I'm at least mostly all right. Like I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm not a total mess up. So like this path worked and I want to talk about that. And that's why I've been writing about homeschooling for years is because like, man, if I could even set a handful of other kids free, if I could be the thing 
that gives a handful of parents the courage to go homeschool their kids. Like what an incredible gift that I could give somebody. And like, that's really inspiring to me. So I want to, I want to talk about this stuff, but rebel educator, um, we're building in alternative media, alternative education media brand. And like, there is no real hub resource right now for everything that's happening in the alternative education world. And there are a lot of questions from people, especially post COVID about what's possible and what's out there. There's a lot of, a lot of disgruntled parents who really aren't happy with the public school system anymore. And it's really hard to go find options if you're not already tapped into the the communities of people who are doing this. So like we're trying to build the resource that when somebody brings up at a dinner party, my kids aren't happy at school. Somebody says, Oh, you have to go read rebel educator. That's, that's where you start. Like that's what we want to be. And it's a project that I'm incredibly excited about. I was working as a, like when I started working again after my sabbatical, I was doing a bunch of freelancing and I was just taking on all the projects that felt like big guesses to go back to our conversation about intuition. And a lot of them did end up being in the education space because that's, that's kind of where my background was already. And I'd been building a network in that space for years. So people started coming to me with education related projects um, and I was, I started to realize that a lot of what I wanted to do was be an advocate for education. And I was also like, ever since I started watching all these podcasts on like week one of my sabbatical and I realized that I really love this intellectual world of people who are talking about ideas and sharing ideas and being advocates for them. I was like, I kind of, I kind of want to be one of those, um, that really, that really like made it clear to me that this was the type of work that I wanted to be doing. So when this project crossed my radar, it was, it was the yes, that was as big as Praxis had been. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I found it. Um, so it's something that I'm really, really excited about. Like we're focusing right now on the spaces where like you really want to establish yourself to be a thought leader. So Substack and Twitter and we're building a website and we're establishing a team of writers who are going to be writing for us. We're going to build this huge content library of all of the different resources that are out there for people, Um, both the theory and the philosophy and also the data, because there's a lot of research that's been done over the last 50 years and how to actually effectively educate kids. So these aren't just theoretical, hypothetical ideas. They have backing, um, and Good then data point of you, you're, th- you're killing it. <laughs> like I said, I haven't at least like totally failed. So I'm doing not, okay. Not, not in debt, <laughs> working on things, living on their own. Yeah, I'm not like, in jail. Can drive. I'm not dead. Uh, um, I'm supporting myself financially. So that's like, great. <laughs> I'm um, doing at least okay. Where, um, where does this come from? Like what I've, I sense this deep desire for you to like, show other people like this possibility that you've kind of tapped into in your own life. Is that a big driver for you? Like what else really motivates you here? Cause I sense it's very genuine and very powerful. Yeah. I was thinking about this this week. Actually, I was trying to, to clarify the roots of this. Cause I think there are a couple. Um, I remember I always love to read. 
I love to read ever since I was a little kid. And to go back to high school, I was like reading a ton and I was reading the great books and I was reading all of these other works too. I always was just really drawn to the people who were able to really clearly communicate ideas and who were advocates for different ideas. Like those were the people that I admired the most. And I've always been the type of person when, where when I admire something in someone, I kind of want to know what it's like to be that too. So like being somebody who is an effective communicator of ideas. I've just always naturally been really drawn to that and really wanted to be that. Like it's, it's, I'm just fascinated by it. And there's also, you know, like I'm, this journey that I'm on has been wonderful. And of course it's had its hard parts and it's rough seasons and it's hiccups and the days where I just like cry. And it's like, I'm like, it's a human experience. It has its, its rough parts too, but the good parts have been self-employed path to me. (laughs) Yeah. But the good parts have been really good. Yeah. And I feel like I got really lucky that I was exposed to the right things that helped me realize there even was a possible path here. And so I feel really strongly like I want to give that back. I want to be that for other people too. Like what I'm so excited about this stuff. How for one, I just like, how could I shut up about it? But then also like, it feels like such an important thing to share that with other people so that they can have it too. And so that's, that's really what drives me. Like I want to free as many kids as I possibly can to go have an amazing education. And I want to share my journey with as many adults as I can who like, you know, the whole reason I'm here is because I went and read and listened to a whole bunch of people who talked about different ideas that I thought were cool. And I went and stole them and try them on and made them fit me. And so it feels like the least I could do is offer my own contribution back into this pool of experiences that we all draw from as we're forging our own. Beautiful. I am definitely rooting for it. Like I'm somebody that's considering homeschooling in the future. So hopefully everything will be like ready to go. (laughs) I hope so. The future kids show up. Plus you have the bonus of knowing me. So like I will always get on a call to talk about this stuff. You're going to have a harder time shutting me up than anything. just going to move to like where you are. I mean, Um, honestly, let's just all hang out in Austin indefinitely because it's kind of nice here. (laughs) Um, want to do some rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, who who's a path uh, role model you have? Somebody's path you admire. I know this is supposed to be rapid fire, but that's that's tough. <laughs> um, it can be slow fire, slow <laughs> contemplative sabbatical energy. Honestly, lately it's been all the people who've built really great online brands. So people like. Uh, Lex Friedman and Zuby and Chris Williamson and these people who've like they've put themselves in a position where they just get to talk to cool people all day and share ideas. Um, lately, they've been the ones that I've been thinking about quite a bit as like a kind of an inspiration board for what's possible. Awesome. Yeah. All, all people that are hyper curious. I love that. Um, what's a book that really like rocked your world? The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. When did you read that? I was 19. Okay. So that's like a typical age yep. when that book is like, but what, how did that resonate with somebody with like your experience homeschooling? Was it just like, oh, you can take ownership of your life? That kind of. 
Yeah, it was a real validation of trusting the yeses and trusting like the innate creative process. Like it really is a book about going and finding your own path. And I feel like it really liberated me to like really trust that inner compass and stop caring about what the world thought was I should or shouldn't do. Best on-ramp could be a book, could be a podcast, could be a a group or program. Best on-ramp for homeschooling. Follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Rebel Educator on Twitter. Hannah Frankman on Twitter. Follow me Um, on Rebel Educator. But Um, I know there's like famous books um, that a lot of people start with, like if you were giving someone like a homework assignment, like what would you give them as like, here's the one week studying you should do before you figure out if this is something you want to do? Yeah. So for somebody who isn't sold on homeschooling yet, they should absolutely read Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gatto, which is, it's not about homeschooling, but it's a really strong case for what's wrong in the education system as we know it. And I think that's a really great starting point for people who, aren't convinced about the homeschooling thing yet. Um, if you, if you're already interested in homeschooling, um, I, I write as a fellow at fee.org, the foundation for economic education, and they have a really great library of content on homeschooling and they have a lot of like current events stuff too. So that's a really great starting point. And then honestly, like we are building a library of resources at Rebel Educator to answer this exact question. So also go check out our Twitter and our website. I don't know when this podcast is being launched, but our website's being launched next week. So we'll have stuff there too. So it should be up. Um, cool. Your website should be up now. <laughs> the website is live. It's rebeleducator.co. Uh, not rebeleducator.com. Somebody already stole that. But rebeleducator.co. We're, we're jumping to the future. Like, cool. Jumping to the future published date. But yeah. Love it. Awesome. I will link up to that. I'll also link up to your articles. You wrote some uh, just really thoughtful, reflective articles. Um, anything else you want to send or direct people to? Final thoughts? No, I think I think that's it, honestly. Awesome. This is uh, definitely learned a lot here, inspired by your journey and excited to see where Rebel Educator goes and where Hannah, Hannah Frankman goes. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the Pathless Path. Uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. And I've been very inspired by your path, too, as we've gotten to know each other better. So this this is great. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much you. for having me, Paul. All righty. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.